0: right Thank you much I don't know this uh, this author underneath me here is the mayor of our, our governor of Iceland, which is where this book ends, so it's pretty incredible to uh, to and he's speaking here I think tomorrow or in a couple days. Uh, I'm sandwiched in between William Volman who's like one of my favorite writers, and you know the mayor of Reykjavik <laughs> which is where this book ends so it's fitting. Um, you got uh, a couple people here have seen this book from its inception. This started in 1996, yeah, my freshman year in college. There was a civ course which was explaining like all of Western civilization and the very first day in seminar, this professor put up a slide of a statue of Poseidon. And he was like, well, what do you guys think? And uh, everybody was really nervous since it was the first day of college and then this one guy, this hulking six foot eight water polo player raised his hand and said, I don't think it's that accurate. And, and, the, and the, the professor was like, well, that's, that's an interesting comment. It's a statue of a god. What do you mean it's not accurate? And he said, "Well, I always thought Poseidon would look like me." <laughs> and, and at that point, this is in 1996, and at that point, I was like, "All right, there's something incredibly fucked up about the psychology of this, like, you know, of this person." And so that um, it became this this mystery to me, you know, who is this brave man, seven stories tall? Um, and it's the mystery that the father goes on in the book is to find out who this son, this person that he's. Um, birthed that has come you know, from him but is completely mysterious to him. So uh, that's the mystery at the heart of it. I'm gonna start reading from chapter two when Owen, the six-foot-eight Olympic-bound water polo player who, on the first page of the book, suffers a career-ending injury and tries to remake himself as an artist. So this is us finding that out. That he's, that he's gone. Professor Burr asked a grad student to deliver the lecture of the Catabasis and left campus early to take Owen to the beach. Owen had been sleeping off the trauma of his final procedure with the surgeon when Burr drove off for his morning seminar. By now, he would be awake and feeling restless. Burr hoped the trip to Zuma would show him that no one wanted to keep him packed away. He could even stop out if he wanted. If things went well, they could hash out a plan for 2004 and have him back at Stanford next year. Burr opened the door and called for Owen. Silence. Empty. A tumbleweed word. Rolling, thirsty, thorned, empty. And whenever empty, also alone. These words snagged Burr as he gripped the kitchen counter and read Owen's post-it farewell. He peeled off the note, and thumbed through the rest of the yellow pad in search of the real note, the reluctant goodbye from his son that must be here somewhere. He called upstairs again. The gravity of the house had changed as if he'd come home to find half of his possessions packed up and moved away. He scanned the living room, taking inventory of chairs and lamps as if he'd been robbed. Had to remind himself that each bare patch of wall had always been empty, never held a mirror, never held a painting. Some emptiness was always there. Burr stumbled over a stack of books on the floor of his study, spines bruised and hyperextended, dust covers unflapped and torn as the column crumbled, and Burr took a slipping step over the rubble. With a thick thumb he undented the corners, rejacketed the hardbacks, and replaced them on the shelves, leaving a two book gap where his lobe odyssey should have been, which was fine but no one could have asked. After surrendering to the scooped out mitt of his leather chair, Burr toggled through a 12-disc carousel. He gritted his teeth and pressed the small remote. Each CD sounded hollow. Bill Evans, Getz Gilberto, Miles, Mingus, Weather Report, Brubeck, all empty. He he thumped his knee with a rolled up magazine, then back to the post-it note stuck to his left index finger. Dad, I'm going to Europe to find out which half of my life I'm about to waste. After I figure this out, we can talk about graduating, Owen." He peeled the note and pressed it into the molding of the doorframe, above pencil marks of Owen's height, taller than his father at 11, six foot 8 at age 15, but still standing on tiptoes, still trying to get that extra quarter inch. Raising Owen had taught Burr the beauty of being marginal, the vain side of any father wants to be Atticus Finch. But what could be worse for a boy than a father impossible to outgrow? Better to let your son know he's the center of your life and you are one of many moons." But this wasn't that. This was Owen telling him he was irrelevant. And when he was honest with himself, it pissed him off. The Volvo ground into gear and skidded into the street. The Burrs lived exactly halfway between the airports, but always flew from LAX. He figured today would be no different, but there was no point to any of this if he couldn't beat the pre-traffic traffic and clear Ventura in the next half hour. He rolled through a red light. In front of his neighbors and with kids walking home from school, Burr ran a red light and then another. Not orange-ish red, <laughs> Burr ran through lamps minutes hot. He glanced at the windshield and read his inspection sticker in reverse. It had lapsed in late 03. He almost wanted an officer to lead him away in handcuffs just for that one moment of concern when a door would be open for him and he'd be pushed in the back with a watch your head. Traffic hit long before Ventura, shattering the glassy calm of Rincon and Solomar. He was caught in a static mass and had to suffer the sight of frontage road drivers whizzing away north and south, making him another nameless roof on Highway 101, a die-cast toy for the news helicopters to beam. He peeked over his shoulder to see if there was any way he could get right and roll down the embankment to the frontage road. A highway patrol car was parked half a mile ahead, blocking his escape. Cars continued to rush by on the one lane road to his left and Harbor Boulevard to his right. He was stuck. The empty space at the middle of two lines, the trapped zero in the 101. By Ventura proper, people were thumbing silver buttons and sliding transmissions to neutral or even park. He fiddled with the gear shift and looked at the analog clock on his rubber dashboard, then at the yellow arrow of in and out pointing away from the highway to a trafficless side street where families shared french fries on concrete tables. Traffic crumpled behind him. Burr found second gear only to round a curve and discover thousands of red taillights. Several of his fellow motorists had given up. One leaned against the window and grinned into her cell phone. One propped a paperback on the steering wheel. One yelled at his windshield and thrust a finger at the dark tinted windows of a pickup truck rattling license plate frames with its base. Burr pinned against cement sclerosis. Could do nothing but redden the shadows of the overpass. The cloverleaf, a maze of misdirection, spun traffic to all four compass points, but not the fifth. The omphalos, the only defined point of a compass, the director of directions. He tried the radio. NPR, but it's actually KCRW since I'm here in LA. KCRW helped. But then they started asking for money, not understanding that even though he had tenure, he had no savings account, he squirmed. He depressed the clutch for a second, then the brake lights washed back over him and he came to a full stop. A gash of metal, which he took to be a discarded fender, rocked with the wind, tickling the cement barrier and catching the setting sun. Fire, the process we mistake for a thing. Traffic, the thing we mistake for a process. He lurched in his lane, the name straight for the front tire of a bumper-hugging infinity. The driver clucked his pointer finger. At that moment, Burr's Volvo could have been a tanker. Burr was moving right, and then right and right again, over the rumble strip, straddling highway buttons and whistling the raked asphalt. Down the spiral ramp he drove, thrown from the great clog and breezing past telephone, telephone poles and cypress tree fences, green, on the, <laughs> green lights yellowing in his wake. Only when he was nearing Highway 1 on the two-lane road through the canyons did he realize that this was the pass for Point Doom, for Zuma. And that was where he ended up losing his son um, for the first time at age six. So, Owen disappears and he's always had a very strange way of view- viewing the world. He's, he's had this way of viewing colour that is completely idiosyncratic and he thinks maybe artistic. and. So after his sports career is over, he's like, okay, well, I'm definitely going to do something. I'm not just going to you know, go work for Goldman, so I'm, I'm going to make my mark artistically before, uh, before things get too late. So I may as well like, see if this strange way of viewing the world just happens to be you know, an artistic way of viewing the world. It's a very naive notion, and it's the kind of notion that gets punished in a place like Berlin. We're, for those of you reading at home, we're on page 103. <laughs> on his way back from the station, Owen found Kurt, I should explain Kurt by the way, this guy that he's fallen, fallen in with is uh, an art monster. He's this huge superstar in the art world who's very, uh, he's about, he's young, but is already showing in, in huge museums. and. Uh, he is in a wheelchair, which is something that's been publicized um, a lot, and and it's, I don't know, you'll see how that plays out. On his way back from the station, Owen found Kurt on the south side of Donzigstrasza, smoking either a hand-rolled cigarette or a joint. Owen crossed the street. Joint. Come with me, I need your help. Owen thought of protesting that he hadn't slept in days, that he had just ingested his first psychoactive substance and was still shattered. But there was no way he would find sympathy in Kurt by complaining about something as banal as total exhaustion. You look run down. You need something? I'll survive. Whatever. We have to swing by my old gallery real quick. Kurt, now in his white undershirt, admired his triceps as he dipped the push rims of his chair from 12 o'clock to five o'clock. Owen followed him to the heart of Mitte. Suddenly Kurt stopped. Push me in. We're, gonna, we're going to that black glass building on the left. A brushed steel sign jutted out from the black marble and glass facade. Laser etched. Todd Zeal Gallery. Kurt flicked his cigarette to the street. Actually, When we walk in, we should both be smoking. Kurt lit two more parliaments and handed one up to Owen. Owen left it dangling from his lip, burning his nose and making his eye water. Kurt hit the brakes and Owen lurched forward. Just open the door, I'll do the rest. Kurt spotted the security camera and bared his teeth. He crashed through the door, hammering down on the tires and wrenching control from Owen's grip, headed straight for a white pedestal in the center of the gallery, which held a brass head under acrylic glass. He slapped the, wheel, the heels of his palms at the, at the rims of the wheels, going faster and faster until just before impact, he shifted left and hooked the hand rim at the left wheel. Kurt and chair turned violently to the left, losing traction and skidding into the plinth with enough force to rock it back and unseat the sculpture from its stand. Both sculpture and pedestal teetered back toward Kurt, at which point he swiped the plinth to the ground. The disembodied brass head fell nose first onto the cement floor. The warbled clang meant damage. Oh, dear God, what have you done? The gallerist, Todd Zeal, came running at Kurt as if he were going to hug him and grieve rather than accost him. Kurt changed his vector and wheeled into the middle of some fluorescent orange yarn that had been knitted into a large net. The web entangled Kurt far more than he had intended. He ripped at the junctions and the screws. Blue plastic anchors and all came unseated from the drywall. He held on to one knot, ringing it furiously back and forth like a madman at the clapper of the town bell. Kurt tore the yarn art piece from three of its four moorings. One strand of the now frumpy piece clung to the spokes of Kurt's wheelchair and followed him through the room as he headed straight for a wall-sized canvas of interlooping red and blue paint that looked like a close-up of chromatin. This is an interactive piece, right, Todd? Todd walked briskly to Kurt's side, trying to reason with him, why did you come here? If you wanted to destroy something, you should have gone to the satellite gallery in Charlottenburg. If you don't stop at once, I'm going to seriously freak out. Kurt couldn't quite reach high enough to tip the canvas from its attachments. He hopped in his chair to push as high as possible, but couldn't dismount the work. He tugged down three times until the wooden stretcher bars finally cracked and the painting caved in on itself. Kurt surveyed the piece, now crumpled on the floor like a car that had just collided with a telephone pole, and looked genuinely pleased. It's all insured, Kurt, but I'm still pressing charges. Oh, you bet. And like it or not, I still have pull in Basel. I can get your booth moved to Siberia with one phone call. Get the fucking checkbook from the desk drawer and write my fucking check. Todd seemed to be processing the whole scene as if a skunk had traipsed into the gallery. He needed Kurt to leave, but didn't want to get sprayed. Two tourists had been standing against the wall this entire time, stunned. It's been six months since the fucking show, Todd. I need to be paid for my work. I need money before you spend it all on Asian boys and have your assets frozen. (laughs) Now to the assistant, who had been smiling at the entire scene until that last comment. Oh, you didn't know that Todd touches (laughs) 12-year-olds? Fuck you, Todd pleaded to Owen. Can you do something about him? For the first time he could remember, Owen had become a spectator a follower. Maybe it was the drugs, maybe the lack of sleep. He took control of the rubber grips on the back of Kurt's chair. Kurt flailed wildly in his seat and turned around to grab Owen by the balls. Owen doubled over, pushing down firmly on the handles. The chair rocked back, nearly falling into Owen's knees, but Kurt sprang forward and landed on the casters. Todd swiped at the chair but missed and stumbled into Owen. Kurt was now pushing against a white lacquered panel. He opened the hidden cabinet, unplugged a USB connecting the video feed and removed an aluminum laptop. He wedged the laptop between his legs and then taunted Todd by wheeling straight at him and swerving and skidding away. Todd shrieked, that's enough. Pay your fucking bills and stop living like a Turk. I'm not giving you a cent. (laughs) We'll call it even. You're probably going to have trouble putting the net back together. Owen left the gallery in a hurry. Kurt took time to make small talk with a tourist. Don't see that every day. Isn't Berlin so exciting? Everyone is so creative, don't you think? He autographed the older woman's purse with a Sharpie and rolled after Owen. Todd and his assistant watched from the front door as Kurt wheeled off. Halfway down the block, he shouted over his shoulder, Todd, you've been great. Can you get the tourists to sign releases? Thanks, love you. See you in Basel. <laughs> All right, so there's one last excerpt I want to read for you guys. It is on page 41 for those of you with books. <coughs> Caroline Dennison had been looking up from her reading every few minutes to watch him scribble and sweep back his hair. Burr, trying to get down on a legal pad, the flood of insights, thinking himself a little dangerous even though he was translating Greek. He upset his coffee as he turned the yellow page and she stifled a laugh at the clatter. He put down his pen and stood. Caroline blew on her tea and pretended to be flattered when he called her Kalisphuros, she of the lovely ankles. The line worked well enough to earn him a seat at her table. She looked down before meeting his eyes like a diver taking a deep breath. The world stabilized on their parallel that afternoon. While everything else drifted into blur, the clarity between their eyes remained perfect. At some point she must have stood and left because at some point she wasn't there. There was neither betwixt nor between with Caroline. She was there, she was not and because his mind refused to process anything purely binary, he looked like a lost boy to the cafe staff who told him they were closed and it was time to go. He tried to remember her gait but could only remember her gliding. He tried to remember how she left, but when exactly does day leave us at night? The next morning, Burr was at the cafe 30 minutes before they opened. After a bagel and three coffees, he decided that he would not be leading a study section that afternoon and kept his table free. By three, she returned. They talked about the courage of the ancients to trust that the sun would continue to rise. He said he was not a man of faith and would need her phone number. When the summer sun brought an archipelago of freckles to her nose and cheek, he named them the Caroline Islands and committed each one to memory. Ulithi, Tonois, Oraluk, Pompeii. He thought he could make her fit into his view of the world. But within a week of living together, she had become the map, rather than something mappable. He dotted every coordinate into the aqua field of Caroline. They folded up together, perfectly aligned and protected, burying their world from the light of others. And just as an open map's 24 folds can seem impossible to unpuzzle and pack away and Their convergences were inscrutable, leaving others to trust blindly that the relationship worked. They blazed through the reception halls of deans and department heads, young and old faculty alike, buzzed around them wherever they mingled, not because she was the only Oxbridge grad in the room, not because this young couple radiated love, not because her father was the university president, but because wherever they went, they carried with them a world. For two years, they little more than canapes. Most of the reception room guests began conversations with, I have something to confess, which was never an indication of being in that person's confidence, but did make them feel like junior clergy. The phrase became a punchline between Burr and Caroline. By the next spring, the sum of all these confidences made Burr's academic advancement inevitable. She would have been climbing the rungs ahead of him, but had put continental philosophy on hold to learn how to paint. His work was inspired, but the search for relevant texts was proving to be fruitless. In all of recorded history, only two partial inscriptions supported his reading of Heraclitus and the Eleatics. Rather than switch to anthropology or wait on the archaeologist to dig up something to analyze, he grew increasingly creative with his source material, and his, until his work hit almost new age levels of misto. Fellow department members, nonplussed at the camaraderie between Burr and Mission University's elect, thought he was on drugs and probably supplying them to senior faculty. A new continent began to emerge in 1982. It was unexpected, but welcome like a new Hawaiian island. As this landmass burped from the deep, they traded booze and fritters for macrobiotic staples. They danced through their junior apartment as her belly grew. He sang the only song about about (laughs) Odysseus he knew, Beyond the Sea, with a real longing for her, even though she was still there. She wove through the second verse like Penelope thinking of the globe-trotting that would accompany his unfinished but surely forthcoming book liminality whenever he translated the song into greek Perain. allo satru ditoy which repeatedly failed to impress her she countered with charles trenet's original la Man violins and harps and floating until the instruments fell. The map hissed orange and began to singe. It was easy for Burr to dismiss the dark edges as something fundamentally unrelated to a fire, something reversible that he could fan away, clap out, or smother, something they could fix together until the edges crackled in flame. On August 21st, 1982, their map was lost in fire. And there's not much to say about what happened next. Islands became ashes. Owen took a life before he took a breath. He very nearly took two lives. His father bobbed between drowning and drowned. Their map was a logos that held his world from flying apart. When it burned, every thought broke to atoms and jittered into the sky. What was left of burr was driftwood, silvered still, empty. Each morning saw a lifeless husk wash up on the floor near his bed. He rolled against the jagged bed frame, rolled back until his head wedged against the nightstand and his body curled up fetal. Lifted up, dashed down, bobbing and unable to decide if it was yet time to sink. There's nothing more heroic than the glowing eyes of a vibrant soul inside a body that has given up. The marathon runner who crawls, that final mile. Burr was the opposite, dead eyes in a capable body, or a a body formerly capable and rapidly depleting. Water was too sweet to drink, lips to throat to lungs, parched and cracked. Even when inhaling his chest seemed to cave in. When he tasted anything, it was ash. He surfaced briefly to change a diaper, warm a bottle, drink a bottle. He hung a mobile over Owen's crib. He called it a marionette, but it was really a Christmas ornament on a string. Burr duct taped it to the ceiling, but every week it fell. Strings dropped and tangled into the bends of the marionette's knees. In dreams, Burr looked around and found knots and snags in his own joints, tripping up each step, each step a taut and tangled fall. Waking, he couldn't even look his newborn son in the eyes for fear of being pulled out of his loss her loss right. so it takes some real bravery for that first question I don't know if anybody's feeling their wild oats <laughs> yeah. when
1: you're riding, like
0: with your inspiration, does it come from personal experiences and other things and kind of work into its own thing? Or how do you work uh, It's weird. Like, there's there's like pretty much 0% autobiography in this book. Um, but I ended up doing everything. I ended up, the best word that I've come up with for this is, is reenactment. So, all the things that I wrote about, I ended up doing. And I think that's why it took, like, 12 years. (laughs) Uh, But, so, I think it's, you know, there was this one germ, and then I spent about four years trying to figure out, like, who the hell says something like that, you know? Like, who says, uh, Poseidon should look like me? And, And so that part was just trying to trying to get my head around that idea but then then the rest of it is just kind of like images just little strings of things that are that are scenes that uh, that I never really question and that as soon as those things are there I just I run with it um, and that's I think that's more my process than anything else and then after in the course of writing like so I moved to New York in 2004 with a 1200 page draft of this book this was initially like going to be, like a, a a big big like in terms of of textbook, um, but then a lot of things that I was reading, I, I realized that it's it would be a better story tighter. So I tried for four years to to sort of whittle that. 1200 page book into something smaller, and it just sucked. So so then I had to hit control A and delete and start the whole thing over. Um, so I started on page one and I wrote the book from the first person instead of the third person. The, this book is in the third person. Um, and so the second draft was in the first person and it was really after like Patricia Highsmith's um, you know talented Mr. Ripley everything that I was trying to do like I was trying to get that sort of a narrative push to it Um, and it was interesting but it wasn't what I wanted to talk about so then I hit control A and delete and started over again for the third draft of this um, from page one rewrote it all the good parts from the, the all the good images stuck and then you know now it's now it's here. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Who's the first person was it from? Um so the the first scene of the second draft of this book was this guy who was, you know, this five foot six hipster in Reykjavik, and he's sitting on a park bench and behind him he's pretty sure that that's Harold Bloom. He's like Dude, that's fucking Harold Bloom right behind me. And so, so this Harold Bloom's a, a literary critic who's, uh, you know, I guess world renowned. And um, this Owen comes up to Harold Bloom and recites a thirty-page epic poem about like anti-capitalism. <laughs> and he's trying. It's like the it was a retelling of the Iliad with like G8 battles. And so um, that, was how the, that was how the second draft started. And the first person for the second draft, his whole thing was he's like nobody's ever given me a second glance in my life. Like, you know, the whole time that I've been walking through the world no one's ever given me a second look. And here's this guy who nobody doesn't do a double take on, you know, like, and he's fucking reciting an epic poem to Harold Bloom. What the hell? Um, and so he goes tracking you know, but it was still the same question. You know, it was still that same question that I had in '96 of like, who's this brave man seven stories tall? Um, and he was doing a lot of the same things that the father does, I think, in in the third draft, but um, but from a different point. Like it was it was pretty much just a rip off of Talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, lots of lots of bars <laughs> lots and lots of bars um it's funny the so i moved into the chelsea hotel and i was uh and i had that little like convent kind of room up there and so so i wrote a lot of this at the chelsea but then i kind of that was when i didn't have the balls to delete everything and i think that was actually really big getting to a point where you can just say like you know Start over you know that that orange juice song, rip it up, and start again is like if I had like one mantra for for my writing, it would probably be that um and so note cards, like ruled note cards are fantastic for that. You just go to a bar, have a note card, write down a scene, and then you're good you know um so a lot of a lot of New York bars where we get friendly rates on drinks, <laughs> um, not not as much coffee shops. Um, I don't know. And then you know, kind of on the run. <laughs> like I've been to all these places. I spent two months traversing Iceland. Um, I went to Art Basel. I. I think, you know, I have some very distinct memories of writing things like at the places that I had already written about, like in earlier drafts, which is kind of cool. It's like this weird deja vu dreamlike state that, that I want the whole book to have. So, I don't know. Yeah. Doctor? Ooh. Good question. So yeah, um, and by the way, like, half the people who've written about this book have misspelled the title. <laughs> it's not, but like, stories this way, it really, it came from um, Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain, which was, it's uh, was a big book for me when I was uh, in high school that is about this guy, I mean, it's, it's a guy who, Thomas Merton, describing like his life of sex and drugs and then entering a convent. Um, and he, you know, that spelling was really important for me. And I think that's, that's sort of where this title came from, I think. Um, other thing was I wanted people to know it wasn't a collection of short stories. <laughs> and uh, then other thing is I really want to move to the UK eventually. So I figured, like, well, better chance of moving over there. <laughs> Maybe I'm kidding about that. I'm not really sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It really came from that, that book, Seven Story Mountain, more than anything else. which I don't know what that's called. Yeah, I mean, to me it's just called the, the Ulysses style. Um, and like in Joy, Joyce's Ulysses, that's how he does dialogue tags. I think it's a little more elegant um, and it's it's a little bit less. I mean, there's a whole lot of visual, there, there are a lot of visual elements to this book, like the section right before. So Professor Burr has this idea called uh, liminality, which is about like the intersection of of things defining them. That nothing is purely, you know, true or false. It's always an intersection between the two. Um, Like the present is neither past nor future. It's defined by the intersection of the two. And it doesn't really exist only as this other intersection. So this is like, he comes up with this sign to talk about his idea. So like this is a visual element in the book. There's a riff on this in, in chapter um, and there are a lot of like very visual elements to the text uh, and I thought the dialogue tags worked well with that um, i it's i think it's more of a visual look at all the little yeah exactly it's like just hanging you know it's a, what's that yeah i think yeah and there's In the first draft of this I really played, there were a a ton of countries that had chapters that didn't end up in, like Owen went to Spain, Owen went to Munich, Owen went to the Orkney Islands north of Scotland, Owen went to Russia, there were all of these different um, chapters and I used the convention for the dialogue tags from that country. Uh, when he was there, so like the double, there's like a greater than less than dialogue tag, I think for Spanish fiction, um, and so I I used whatever conventions were there for that first draft, but by the by the third draft, I was just like, nah, fuck it, this is the, like the way to roll, and I think um, it's, I, I think I'll always use that. Yeah. So it is that's my question, which is sort of answered with like your that it was a book
1: about Iceland. Mm-hmm. And then you, you walked across
0: Iceland, and now the book is, and the little bit you showed me later was in Berlin, and I was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> what well, about go Iceland? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's weird. I mean. So, so would you, is that, is sort of journey is also a woman's journey as you build
1: this journey along with the right of the, the book, and so it all becomes 100%.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I kind of badly like, articulated men. No, I mean you're, you're right and that's, that's also why I identify with the father because like the father's the one who's got to leave his cloistered life and go find his son. I mean he's got to get up and travel around the world and um, in order to figure out the answer to this question. So I think that's, that's absolutely right about um, identifying through the process of, of going through you know, and discovering the things that I'm writing about. Um, Iceland was always, so the one, back to that original germ, you know, like who thinks like that? Who says a god looks like me? Only answer I found was in the Icelandic sagas, like in Norse mythology, specifically the the sagas of the warrior poets. So the first draft of this was kind of a one-to-one mapping of different uh, warrior poet sagas. From I mean, there's still and there are vestiges of this now. Um, Hal, Hal the, the troublesome poet, is one of the seven warrior sagas, and Hal is a character in um, in Berlin. And so there's always, you know, I can't really get away from the fact that that Iceland is there. And Owen, the name he was, the reason he was named that was to parallel Odin, who gave his eye. That's Owen's injury, by the way, I'm not spoiling anything since it's right up front. Um, but Odin gave his eye for the gift of poetry, for art, and he left his eye on Mimir as well, and that's why he wears an eye patch. Um, and that ends up being a significant reference in, in the book. But because of this, I was always sure it was going to end in Iceland, um, I I traversed Iceland you know, over two months, I went from the westernmost tip to the easternmost tip um, just on a, on a solo walkabout, <laughs> I guess, um, and I thought I was gonna do like this amazing riding, but it ended up being this kind of more athletic thing of the, just like finding water. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would hike like 25 miles a day just to find uh, the next water source because that was, you know, that was really, you could hike with Three days of water, but you would only be able to hike like seven or eight miles just because you're carrying a lot of weight. Or you could just keep it really light and just kind of fly, but the whole time not have any water, so you're totally. <laughs> well, that was the weird thing. I assumed that there would be no. I would assume there would be no water. Like I thought it would all be frozen, but there actually was water everywhere. You know, and a lot of it wasn't. You know, to to do the adage, like a lot of it, there wasn't a drop to drink. Um, because you can't really drink. You can water drink. And just spring out of the the right yeah, exactly. And like commercials, and Skittles rain from the sky. <laughs> it's <was> just like <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, like water was really the limiting reagent <laughs> of that of that whole of that trip. But um, I don't know. It, I always knew that it was going to end in Iceland, so that that place was fixed in all. I mean, I guess that was starting point of the second draft, right? And so i had to go there eventually to know what the hell i was talking about and i'm talking about weird places in iceland but the thing that's the real kicker is after 2 months of you know having all of these near death experiences hiking completely by myself in places that like there this is all off trail hiking just walking across the country and i i'm pretty sure there were some places that i was where people haven't been in, in like a year you know like going down it's like free down climbing a 60 foot rock face and and very, coming very very close to dying the upshot of this was that it turns out to be like three paragraphs of the book <laughs> so it's like I mean it's you know it's uh, but it, the funny thing is that's, that's the level of the whole thing you know like I, I had a piece in the new museum, a 14 foot sculpture that I spent a year building in in 2011 and it was to talk about, you know, and again, there are like two paragraphs about contemporary conceptual sculpture in the book. So it's like a lot of this stuff is like, this is basically, this came first, but then I did everything in it. So it's, it's very difficult to separate the, the, it's reverse autobiographical. It's like, if that makes any sense, yeah. that um, the book came and then I ended up doing the things that I was writing about because I didn't, you know... Right. W- yeah, exactly. So I think that's my, you know, as, as opposed to like the canonical MFA advice, write about what you know. My advice, to the extent that I'm in a position to offer any, is write about things you have no clue about, but then like go f- do it, you know? Maybe you should write about what you're I think I should write about like curing cancer or something like actually like you know, that's like has some social good instead of like, you know, the kind of things that I'm interested in. But um, yeah, I, I definitely lottery winning would work. Was <laughs> there anything that you like, did after writing about it? I got mean, that so wrong. Well. You know it's weird is the the images were all pretty consistent like it was the the pictures were all pretty right on the money um, The one huge huge, huge thing is that like this book began as a takedown piece like I hated contemporary conceptual art and was it just pissed me off. I was like, this stuff needs to stop because it's hurting my soul and uh so so when i you know, when I started writing about art, it was to make it stop, and and then in the course of doing that project, like, and actually, like, it was through a gallery that was, you know, a pretty big New York gallery, I completely changed my opinion of a lot of contemporary art, and went from a position of thinking that these guys were clowns to learning how to see it and realizing that there's a lot of beauty and just, and there's a lot of care in the selection of materials and presentation of things that might look like, you know, they intentionally look like they're um, slapdash, I don't know, but, um, but they, they're they actually pretty beautiful when you think about it. And Joseph Boy is, is the one artist who is like number one on that, um, as far as somebody that I thought was, you know, was a clown. Um, but you know, it is now I realize is is one of the most important artists of the twentieth century. So that's the only thing that like totally, totally changed was doing that made me change my opinion of art. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know, there's a weird level of, of satire in this. Like it's I'm not really I'm I'm kinda taking the piss out of contemporary art, but in a very loving way, like from a place of love, whereas like the first draft was just out of bile. <laughs> and I think it's uh that doesn't work, by the way. That that makes for really tiresome reading. But, you know, when you love something, it's it's more like your parents like you laugh when your family members take the piss out of you because you're like, all right, well, there's, you know, that's uh, there's some there's a whole lot more truth to it, or there's a deeper truth to it. And to the extent that that I'm satirizing um, art or theory, or art theory, um, it's it's from a place of love, whereas it started from a place of of just like jealousy and hate. So. <laughs> Um, James Fuentes Gallery and then it was the new museum. They have a thing in the spring called the, the Festival of Ideas for a New City that was um, and it was really cool. Like there, so the, the art, there are like land art was the kind of art that I was the most drawn to um, and Richard Long is kind of the, the top of that entire field. He and the new museum had like maybe five pieces for that festival thing in, in 2011 and one of them was Richard Long. So it was like us, like this artist, Daniel Subkoff, who I collaborated with, it was us right, or, right alongside Richard Long. So it was just, it was awesome. But, um, yeah, totally changed the book and and I think made it a whole lot better. Um, how about, what do you feel about the direction of art now? Where do you feel art? I don't know if... I think, like, I think directionality is a really problematic word uh, because I think of it more as, like, a wheel or, like, a pie chart, and I think there are a lot of different directions that different things are going, um, but I don't think that there's anything like a, like a through line that's going, you know, as, as far as one direction of it, and I don't really feel comfortable making, like, a normative statement about, like, this is where it should go. You know, I think that there's an there's a really odd dialogue with, with fascism and art from like you know going back to well maybe all the way back but like apollinaire and those guys like wanting world war 1 because they're like oh great art is going to come from this and i think like any time you, you put that normative claim of like art should do this then, then you run the risk of kind of like you schools know. like fish emerge the art people just start doing things and collecting their ideas you know, together. Do you see any of that that like you? Know? Yeah, sure. Um, I think what's happening, you know, I, I think the I'm most, the thing that I follow the most is is land art and like and what's happening with kind of re-looking at, at Michael Heiser specifically. There are some people that are that are reimagining some of that and I think there's the one art piece that I'll really like there's a bunch of fictional art in this um, like conceptual pieces that that could be actually put out Um, and I'm actually I think I'm gonna do one of the pieces in this book with uh, with an artist in Berlin but the the part of that that interests me the most is really just messing around with the dialogue of of the gallery space, which is really you know it's it's like Duchamp or Eve Klein, um, probably more like Eve Klein than than anything else. But the artists who are who are doing that are the ones that those are the ones that I really like. All right. Thank you so much, guys. I can't tell you. It's like it's just such an honor to be like at this amazing bookstore that's been I don't know like I, I said a, a lighthouse. Just like you know, just this awesome. There's there's all this dialogue in the book about like the barbarians are at the gates, and like if there are gates, they're like the front door of Skylight Books, and like you know, and this is just this awesome space in LA that uh, you know that keeps reading alive. So I don't know. Thanks. <laughs>